Hello all, it's Tavara Kresniansky here from Adayad. Uh, uh, Adayad's mission is to provide the tools and mindsets for successful marriages. And to that end, we have many workshops and resources for Shaduchim, early marriage, and into the marriage itself. Tonight's topic is something different. Um, Baruch Hashem, not often, but sometimes, something happens to a marriage that can really negatively impact uh, the marriage. And Adayad provides resources for that, too. And so that's what tonight's call is about. Tonight's call is surviving betrayal. Nobody expects to be betrayed when they get married, and Baruch Hashem, it doesn't happen that often. But if it happens, uh, it's, it's, it's serious. And so tonight I'm really grateful that Moshe Zev Lamb will be speaking with us. Uh, he's a family therapist who also deals with betrayal at some points in his practice, and I'm most grateful that he's here to join us today to talk about this topic. So, floor is yours. Uh, thank you. Hi. Thank you very much. For, thank you very much for having me here tonight. Um, really, it's a privilege to talk about the topic of marriage, the topic of shalom bias, but the topic of betrayal in a marriage really is in a league all its own. Um, just. Just to express my sentiments about what it means to talk about betrayal in a marriage, uh, there's a story, there's a, there's a, there was a comedian by the name of Gilda Radner who died in 1989. She was very famous in the 1980s, and in 1989, Gilda Radner died of ovarian cancer. And she wrote a book while she was sick. She wrote a book about her illness. And in the book, she says something very, quite interesting. She says that all her life, she was a comedian, which means that everything she did was about humor. She would, she would be able to look at any tragedy, any sorrow, any pain, any sadness, anything that people looked at in a serious way, she was able to look at it and find the humorous part of it. And that's how her mind worked. Her mind said, okay, what's funny about it? She writes that when she was in her doctor's office and she got the diagnosis of, of ovarian cancer, the first place that her mind went was, okay, so what's, what's funny about this? And she writes in the book that this was the first time in her life that she was faced with a situation that she couldn't find any, anything humorous about. And that's, that's kind of how I feel when I deal with the topic of betrayal. When a couple walks into my office to discuss shalom bias, even if there are very serious issues, there's usually a smile in that first session. There's usually maybe even some laughter in that first session. But when the couple comes in to talk about a betrayal, there's, there's, there's nothing to smile about. There's nothing humorous about it at all. And, that, and that's what this topic is. It's just there's, there's only seriousness and only pain in this topic. It's never a good idea to compare um, two different types of tragedies. So I'm not going to compare two different types of tragedies, but I want to make a comparison between betrayal and death, not to compare the whole tragedy, but just to compare one aspect, the two aspects of, of each tragedy, just to highlight certain aspects of betrayal that I think need to be highlighted. In a, in a, let's say there's a good marriage for 20 years. A couple has a good marriage, and one spouse, Rahman al-Islam, dies. The spouse wakes up, in the, the surviving spouse wakes up in the morning and thinks to herself or himself, you know, I had 20 beautiful years, but the, my whole future is gone. The, I was hoping there would be another 40 years. When there's a betrayal, the spouse wakes up in the morning and says, not only is my whole future gone, but it feels like my entire past is gone. I lost the last 20 years. Another comparison, again, not comparing one tragedy to another, but just to highlight one aspect. When a spouse dies, there's a shiva. The community is involved. 
the person suffers, but they don't necessarily suffer alone. People rally around. When there's a betrayal, the, the betrayed spouse usually just sits alone in shame. Um, the, the, when there's a betrayal, the first feeling is a sense of hopelessness, a sense of it's all over, my whole life is over, it's all gone. But I just want to put a statistic out there that I, just to put the conversation that we're going to have in context. The statistic that I want to put out there, and there's, there's several different studies done on this, but basically the range is 70 to 80 percent. When there is an extramarital affair, which is the worst kind of betrayal, which is the betrayal that I'm going to talk about tonight mostly, when there is an extramarital affair, an infidelity, 70 to 80 percent of the time the marriage does survive the affair. Um, we're obviously, we're after more than just survival. We want to make this a better marriage, a more beautiful marriage, and that sometimes can happen after an affair because whatever happens, the rebuilding, if there is a rebuilding that's possible, it can make the marriage deeper. But it's just important to keep, it, to keep that, that number in, in, in mind. 70 to 80% of marriages do survive an affair. Um, I, I wanna, before we begin, I just want to define what we're talking about when we talk about the, the word betrayal. How to define a betrayal is, is an enormous topic. There are books written on this, and I'm not going to go into that at all. Um, for purposes of tonight's discussion, I'm going to be talking about um, the worst kind of betrayal, and it's fidelity, whether it's emotional, whether it's physical. There are many other kinds of betrayal. There are many ways that people define betrayal. What, what if it, you know, sometimes people say, well, what if it was only one time? What if it was pornography and there was no other person? What if it was prostitution, texting, email, social media? What if we were just friends? There's a whole digital world that, that has opened up all new kinds of betrayal. Much of what we're going to talk about tonight applies to all, to all of the above. But just to simplify the topic, I'm going to be talking about when there's an extramarital affair, when there's an infidelity. With each of the other types of betrayal, there could be some differences, there could be some variations, but generally the, 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 the general direction, the roadmap that I'm going to try to lay out is, is more or less the same. One other thing I want, to put, I want to put out there before we begin is, first of all, just, just for the convenience of me being able to talk and uh, I'm going to use certain terminology. I'm going to use certain terminology that I, want to, that I want to explain. Who is the betrayer? Is it the husband? Is it the wife? The statistics in the secular world are 50-50. There are just as many wives cheating on their husbands as there are husbands cheating on their wives. Uh, for purposes of tonight's talk, for several reasons, for purposes of tonight's talk, I'm going to use the terms he and she. I'm going to use the terms he or the husband or him when I'm referring to the unfaithful spouse. I'm going to use the word she or her when I'm referring to the hurt spouse. And the reason why I'm going to do that, I, I, even though I've seen it both ways and it happens both ways, first of all, I'm doing it based on the assumption of who, the, who most of the audience is. I may be wrong, but that's an assumption I'm making. Second of all, if I talk about it in that sense, many halachic shilas don't have to be dealt with. When the betrayer is in the firm world, when the betrayer is the wife, a, a rav needs to be consulted, and there are a lot of halachic issues that need to be addressed, which I'm not going to touch on at all tonight. And then third of all, just for ease of use, it, it can get very complicated if I, so just for my convenience in being able to talk, if I have to say he, she. Um, and if I'm offending anybody by using that terminology, I really, I'm just apologizing beforehand, but it's, it's mainly just for ease of use in, in, in presenting the conversation. Uh, another thing I want to put out there is who am I talking to? 
when there's a betrayal, there are two people involved. There's the unfaithful spouse, what I'm, I'm going to keep on using that term, the unfaithful spouse, and then there's the hurt spouse. Um, tonight, I'm going to be talking to the hurt spouse, not the unfaithful spouse, even though the unfaithful spouse needs a lot of talking to. Um, and as, as I go along, you'll see that there are, there are places where I'm going to actually talk maybe just a little bit to the unfaithful spouse, but the, the main... The main thrust of what I want to talk, talk to, of who I want to talk to tonight is to the hurt spouse. Uh, what I want to do tonight, and there's really a short amount of time that we have, and I, I just want to define the roadmap to the journey that's, that people who go through a betrayal, a betrayal embark on. Um, there's, there's not a, to, to, really to exhaustively to talk about this topic takes way longer than the time we have tonight. But even you know, the first thing that people that happens when there's a betrayal is people have a sense of hopelessness. It is, there's nowhere to go. There's a total lack of direction. And really what I just want to put out there is there is a roadmap. There is a direction. It's not hopeless. There, is a, there, is, there are things to do, and there is a, there is a roadmap to the, to the process. Even if I can't define that roadmap clearly tonight, but I just want to, I'm hoping that people just walk away that, with the idea that there is a roadmap and maybe to go to a therapist because there, there, is, there is hope over here. There is something to do. So... Let me begin by defining what, so what happens. What happens after there's a discovery of a betrayal, after there's a discovery of an infidelity? Generally, the, the, literature, the literature defines three stages that the couple go through, three phases that the couple go through. And it's important. These, are, these, three, these three phases are very important to keep in mind, and we're going to be talking about it throughout the conversation tonight. The three phases that a couple goes through the phase one is the crisis phase. It's, just, it's, it's that moment when there's a discovery made, when the emotions are rampant. It's, it's an emotional crisis. There's this trauma taking place. And there's really nothing to do in this phase other than deal with the crisis. And that could take several weeks, sometimes way more than that, sometimes several months. But all that, all that can be done during this time is, is deal with the crisis. The second phase is what's generally there's different names that, that, that are used, in, um, but generally it's the decision-making phase, what's called the understanding phase or the decision-making phase. That's the phase where maybe the crisis, the, the emotions have calmed down a little bit, very little, but there's enough room to have a discussion, to have a conversation, to try to understand what's, what happened and make a decision to see if there's, if there's something worth saving over here. The third phase, if we get there, is what's referred to as the rebuilding phase. Um, if a decision is made to try to save this marriage, if a decision is made to, to, to go forward, the third phase is the rebuilding phase. Tonight, I'm going to be focusing mostly on phase one and two, the crisis and the decision-making phase. Um, the rebuilding phase often is a much longer process. You sit with a therapist and try to rebuild the, rebuild the marriage, try to create attachment. We're not going to be talking about that. First, you need to get through the crisis and need to make a decision. Now, just, just one word about these, about these three phases. It's, these three phases are not necessarily fixed and sequential. If you look at the literature, they line it up. You know, first goes the crisis, then goes the decision, and then goes the rebuilding. And it, in reality, I found it really doesn't work that way. It's, it's not so neat. Um, you could be six months into a rebuilding phase and all of a sudden the crisis phase comes back all over again for me, sometimes for no apparent reason 
just the emotions are just that painful and that powerful. You could be, you could go back from rebuilding to a decision-making phase, back to crisis. You come and you start all over again. But one thing that is important to remember, you cannot go to a decision-making phase without going through the crisis. There's a crisis that needs to be dealt with. If you try to make a decision when you're still in the crisis mode, you're going to make the wrong decision. If you try to rebuild when you still haven't solidified the decision, it's not, it's not really going to work. Um, let, me, let me start by describing the crisis phase. W what happens? And it's important to know where you are, what's happening. And the first thing that I tell a couple when they walk in, it's two days after they, they discover the betrayal, they come in, there's emotional explosions going on. And the first thing I say is, take it slow. It, it's not a time to make any decisions. It's a time to deal with the emotions of what, what just happened. The emotions really get the first crack at making any sense of what happened. There's this pain, this confusion, this sense of loss, this anger, this sadness, this depression. I'm going insane. I'm up all night crying. I can't function. Life's not worth living anymore. I have no purpose in life. That's what's going on in the crisis phase. And it's important to know and accept where you are and normalize what you're feeling. This is trauma in its deepest sense. There's, there's really nothing to do during this initial phase other than deal with the trauma and other than deal with the pain and the, the, the painful emotions that are going on. There's, a, there's an enormous amount of confusion that's, go, that's going on during this phase. And I, I'm, I, I think it's important for me to express all this because if, if anyone is listening and is going through this phase, you're normal. That, that's just such an important thing to remember. Because one, one of the things I hear so many times from people that I, I'm going crazy, it doesn't make sense, what's the matter with me? No, you're normal. This is, this is, this is a reaction to one of the most traumatic events in your life. There's a lot of confusion, different thoughts, back and forth. I hate him. I love him. I, I, I want to kill him. I wish he'll never leave. I get out of my life. Please don't leave me. I, I want to know everything that happened. I'm not interested in anything. These, are, these thoughts are going to go back and forth, and that's normal. Now, in this phase, what, what's, the un, what's the unfaithful spouse supposed to do? And I, I said I wasn't going to talk to the unfaithful spouse. I was talking to the hurt spouse. But let me just talk for a minute to the unfaithful spouse. What the unfaithful spouse needs to do in the, during this phase is just to be present and to listen. That's it. There may be a lot of things going on in the unfaithful spouse's mind. There may be, he may be dealing with his own emotional turmoil. He may be dealing with his own anger and his own issues. But at this point, the only thing he can do, if he wants this marriage to work, if that's what he wants, is to be present and listen. Now, at some point in this process, I may turn to the hurt spouse some point later on, not now, after the crisis phase is over, but at some point I may turn to the hurt spouse and I'll say, let's listen to what he has to say. You know, let's try to listen to his pain. But I'm not saying that now. Not now. Now, now there is no discussion. He needs to say I'm sorry. He needs to express empathy. He needs to listen. He needs to be humble. He needs to give her permission to express whatever she needs to express and allow it to be okay. And what can he expect in return during this initial phase? Absolutely nothing. Um, he may, you know, he'll be doing this the right way and listening and expressing empathy, and the next morning you wake up and it starts all over again. Um, just to understand, I'm saying this, just to understand what the, the, the enormous sense of loss that, that uh, the hurt spouse is going through and I'm saying this for the unfaithful spouse to understand, but also for the hurt spouse to understand herself. What, what, what am I experiencing? Just to normalize that experience. Th there's a loss of identity. 
um, that people express. Like, who am I? We, we don't realize how much of who we are, how we identify ourselves, is tied into our spouse and our marriage. And when we feel there's no spouse and there's no marriage, when we feel we've lost that, we, we, we lose the, the who am I questions starts to, starts to raise its head. There's a, there's a loss of a sense of specialness, attachment, belonging that we get from a marriage. Now, it's important to know we're talking about feelings, not reality. Um, I'm saying this to the hurt spouse and to anybody who wants to help the hurt spouse. There is no real loss of identity. There is no real loss of specialness. These are the feelings that are coming up. There's a loss of a sense of purpose. I've heard people express, what, what, am, I, what am I alive for? What, what am I even living for right now? Everything, everything I lived for for the last 20 years is gone. I don't even know why I'm alive. And again, this, these are feelings. And those feelings need to be respected. There's a loss of a sense of self-respect, self-worth. There's an enormous sense of shame that, that, people, that people go through, in this, that the hurt spouse goes through. Um, there's a loss of control over thoughts and feelings. There's just an obsessive thinking that takes over. And when you have no control over your thoughts and feelings, meaning they're flying one place, they're flying someplace else, the confusion, I hate him, I love him, I don't even know what I'm thinking anymore. When a person loses control over their thoughts and feelings, they, they lose control over the, they, they, there's a loss of identity attached to that also. I don't, I don't even know who I am anymore. There's also a loss of trust and safety, not just in the spouse, but a loss of trust and, and, and safety in the world. And what I, what I mean by that is, I'll describe it the way one woman, one woman described it to me. She said, when you, walk, when you walk on a sidewalk, you put your foot down, you know that your foot is going to land on the sidewalk and stay there. It's not, it's not going to go through. That's a, there's a certain trust and safety we have in the world. The world works a certain way. When I put my foot down, the floor doesn't cave in. Imagine a world where you were never sure if you put your foot down, if it was going to stay there or if it was going to fall through. She told me, I live in a world where I'm not sure if I put my foot down on the sidewalk, if it's going to land there. The thing that I trusted more than anything else in the world betrayed me. How can I trust anything else? That's, I'm saying all of this because the hurt spouse needs to know, you need to know that you're normal. These are the feelings that you're going to go through. These are the, and, and don't be afraid to express it, and you're not crazy. This, these are the feelings that, you, that you're going to feel and that you're entitled to if you feel them. What, one thing that I feel very strongly about, I think this is really important, is that it, it's, it's very important to have someone, for the hurt spouse to have someone to confide, to confide in throughout the process. And when I say someone to confide in, I'm not talking about a therapist. I'm not talking about a rough. I'm talking about a friend or a relative. It is so important to have someone other than a therapist to confide in. And, and I'm, there are two reasons. The first reason is the obvious reason. You want somebody to, to be able to, be, to, to, to cry to at 1130 at night when you can't reach a therapist. You need somebody that's available more often than a therapist can be available. You just need that emotional support. But a more important reason and that, that, that first reason is the obvious reason. The second reason maybe is not so obvious, but it's, re, it's probably more important. <clears throat> when you confide in someone outside of a therapy room, the secret is out. It's so important for the secret to become not a secret. Uh, affairs, infidelities thrive in secrecy. It, it needs to be taken out of the bubble of the marriage. It can't be something that just the husband and wife know and nobody else knows. It's so healthy to, for the process to unfold if both spouses know the secret is out. And I don't mean the secret is out, it's published all over the world, but there's one person outside the bubble of the marriage that knows about it. 
Um, when you share a secret in the therapist's office, it's still a secret. When you share it with a friend, a relative, a sibling, it's, the secret is out. Um, I want to put one idea out there that is very, it's just an idea that's going to pop up a lot over the next few, over, over the next, uh, over the next, uh, over the course of the conversation. And that is the concept of feelings versus values. We act based on sometimes how we feel, and sometimes we act based on what we value, even though we might not feel it. There is, we tend to think, though, that if I, we tend to confuse these two things. In other words, we tend to think that if I really value something, if something's really, really important to me, I'm going to feel it. And we tend to, to think also that if I really feel something, that means it's important to me. Or if I don't feel it, it means it's not important to me. We make this connection between how we feel and what's important to us. And as a result of that, sometimes we feel if, if, I'm, if I'm acting in a way that it's not in sync with how I feel. Let's say I'm acting based on how, what I value, but it's not how I feel. We tend to think that that's somehow a fake. You know, I don't really feel like being nice to you right now, but I'm going to be nice to you anyway because it's important to me. It's something I value. I value being nice. Yeah, it's kind of fake. And I'm going to, I'm going to suggest that it could be nothing further than the truth. Acting on a value, acting on how, acting on what I value, acting on what's important to me, even if I don't feel it, is very real and it's not fake. And it just, just... A small example to illustrate that point, let's say it's 2 o'clock in the morning and my baby wakes up and I just got back from a chasana at 1 o'clock and I just got down, I just, I just fell asleep, my baby wakes up at 2 o'clock crying, I get out of bed, I feel tired, I feel angry, there are no positive feelings in me. And if I'm trying to access that feeling called love, maybe I can't access it right now at 2 o'clock in the morning. So I'm going to pick up my baby and give my baby a hug and a kiss based on a value based on what I know is important to me. That's not fake. That hug and that kiss is very, very real, and maybe even more real in some ways than if I really felt the love, because I'm, 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 I'm going against the feeling and acting what's really, what, based on what I really value. This concept is going to be very important in the journey that lies ahead for a couple that, that struggle with the betrayal, the, I, because so many times there's going to be the need to act based on what we really value, even though the feelings are pulling me in a completely different direction. One of the first questions that's asked after a betrayal, sometimes even the first question is, why not end it? Like, it's over. I'm done. Why, why should I continue? And I just, I just want to address that question because it's a really important question. You know, my, my, my spouse just, just cheated on me. He just, you know, he, he destroyed everything. Why should, I stay, why should I stick around? Why should I put in the effort to rebuild? And... There's, there, there, are, there are several answers to that question. There are very, but first of all, sometimes it does need to end. Sometimes, you know, at, at the beginning, maybe some kind of cost-benefit analysis does need to be made. Again, never in the crisis phase. Oh, that should always be saved for, you know, if you, if you can get through the crisis phase. The decision, you know, if you can't get through the crisis phase, if the unfaithful spouse um, acts inappropriately during the crisis phase, maybe that alone is enough, is, is, is a reason to end it. But if you can get through the crisis phase and you get to the decision-making phase, there, there are some things to really consider about why, why try to save this marriage. If this was a horrible marriage for 20 years, we lived in misery, and this was just the straw that broke the camel's back, okay, that's, that's one type of situation. But very often affairs take place inside of very good marriages. It's something that people have a hard time accepting, people have a hard time understanding, but it's a fact. 
Um, affairs happen for a lot of different reasons. <clears throat> and yes, it's, it's, if there was a betrayal in a marriage, if there was an infidelity, there was something wrong with the marriage, probably. Or, the, not always, I, just, I shouldn't say that. So very often there is a problem with the marriage. Sometimes there's a problem with the person, with the, with the unfaithful spouse. Sometimes there's a sex addiction. Sometimes there's some other issues. But very often it might reflect some kind of problem with the marriage. But even if it reflects a problem with the marriage, a problem with the marriage doesn't mean the marriage has no value. It could have been a very beautiful marriage, and certain aspects of the marriage need to, need to be worked on, need to be fixed. But it, there's a value here that, 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 that could really be, that could, the, the marriage has a value, and maybe there's something here that really could be saved. There's also the possibility of healing the pain. If you end a marriage, there's an open wound over here. It's bleeding. There's an open wound, and the soul, the soul is bleeding. And healing that wound... Saving the marriage could heal that wound. Getting divorced might leave that wound open and bleeding. There is a reason to try to heal the wound. Um, there may be issues in the marriage that were never worked on, and all that needs to happen is we need to work on these issues. It doesn't necessarily mean the marriage was hopeless. It doesn't mean that the last 20 years were, were useless. Very often, the perception of what happened is not what really happened. Um, affairs are often based on illusion, they exist in a bubble. Affairs very often, almost always, don't take place in the real world. What, it's interesting that when an affair sees the light of day, when an affair is uncovered, almost always, almost always the affair ends very shortly afterwards. The statistics of it, if you might wonder, so how many times do people have extramarital affairs and then the two lovers end up getting married? You know, if they were really so in love with each other, they were willing to risk everything to be together, there must be some really deep love, and they're expressing, wow, we really love each other. How many times do they actually get married? The statistic is 3 to 7% of the time they actually do get married. They do stay together. 93 to 97% of the time the affair breaks up very shortly after the affair is uncovered. The 3 to 7% that do get married, what's their success rate in the marriage? There's a 75% divorce rate among lovers that get married after an affair, three to 75% divorce rate. So it's important to note that the affair is taking place in, in, in an illusion, in a bubble. Marriage is taking place in the real world. Affairs take place without financial issues, without children, without laundry, without what's for dinner tonight, without, without any problems. It's not real. And sometimes people are in an unhealthy way looking for that not realness. Marriages take place in the real world. So, a marriage is not always competing with another love. A marriage very often is just competing with an illusion. Now, when, it, when, we, when we get to a decision-making phase, how can I know that this can work? How, one of the first questions is, how will I ever know? How can I be sure? How can I ever, ever trust again? And I'm, I'm going to talk for a, in a minute about the transition from crisis to the decision-making phase, but sometimes even in the crisis mode, there's a, there's, these questions come up. How will I ever know again? How can I be sure? How can I ever trust? You know, why, why even go forward? One of, one of the first ideas that I, that, one idea that's really important, um, I want to introduce an idea called making workable assumptions. And it's used all the time in marriage therapy. It it's definitely needs to be used when there's a betrayal. Making workable assumptions means that we really don't know. But we're going to make a workable assumption. In other words, if the question is, how do, I, how do I know my husband's telling the truth? Maybe he's lying to my face. Maybe he's being manipulative. How will I ever believe him again? 
And the answer to that is you, you, you won't. But if we make the assumption that he's lying, then we might as well just end it now. There's nothing to do. If we make the assumption that, he's, that he might be telling the truth, then there's something to work with. We have an assumption to work with. We may find out later that that assumption was false. And there might be a lot of time and a lot of pain that we go through to find out that assumption is false. But there really is no other option. If we're going to go forward, we need to start with some kind of workable assumption. Are there any indicators I can look for to help me feel that this can work? What am I looking for in my – for the hurt spouse, what am I looking for in my husband that would tell me, yes, this might work, or that would tell me, no, no, this, this, there's no way this can work? So first I'm going to state the two obvious things. You need a verbal assurance that it's over, and you need, and you need a verbal assurance that it's over. If not, it doesn't mean that it's, not, that it's over. It doesn't mean that the marriage is over. If, if, if the husband is not willing to say, I, I definitely want to end this, let's say he says, I'm not sure, I need to think about it. If that's the case, then everything I'm about to say for the next half of this conversation is irrelevant. We, we need a different conversation. I wouldn't say the marriage is over, but we need a different conversation. Also, if this is not the first time, but if there's a history, if there's a history, again, a lot of what I'm going to say in the rest of this conversation is not relevant. We need, we need to have a different conversation. But assuming that the, that the spouse says, I promise you it's over, and this is the first time. There's three other things that are really important that, that need to be there if we're really going to work on this marriage. Number one, I think the single most important thing is humility. When, when, I, when a couple comes into my office after an affair, I'm looking to see that the unfaithful spouse is humble. That, to me, is the single most important indicator. Second, there needs to be an ability to empathize with your pain and take responsibility for it. And third, can, can, can he be open? Can the spouse be open and talk about what happened? It's not just about let's move on. Okay, I'm sorry, but I, I really I can't talk about it. No, there needs to be an ability to talk about it. Um, but having said that, I also want to state that if those things are not there, what if the unspeakable spouse is doing the wrong things? He's not being humble. He's not being remorseful. He's, he's, he just wants to move on and he doesn't want to talk about it. Again, I wouldn't say that the marriage is over. It, it just means there's a flag and it needs to be dealt with. What I've seen many times, it may just mean that he needs guidance. He needs to thought, sort through his own emotional turmoil. Um, what I've seen many times is a spouse's inability to, 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 to discuss it. You know, some of us say, let's just move on. It, it, it's coming from a place, very often, it's, 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 sometimes it's coming from a place of lack of empathy and lack of remorse, but sometimes it's coming from a place where he's just not able to deal with his own guilt and his own pain and he might need a therapist to hold his hand through the process. Sometimes the lack of remorse can come from his, his confusion with his own emotions. Uh, he may feel a sense of hopelessness. Um, sometimes you may catch, catch your spouse in a lie, so that might seem, oh, he's lying, it's all over. But sometimes that lie is because he's scared. He doesn't know what to do. He feels, like he, he feels that this is the only way he's going to save his mar marriage, and he's acting, he's acting stupidly. The unfaithful spouse needs guidance. Um, I want to talk about moving from phase to phase. I outlined phase one, phase two, phase three. The, moving from phase to phase doesn't work smoothly. There is no point where we say, okay, crisis is over. Now let's, uh, now let's deal with the decision-making phase. There is no fine line, and there is no timetable either. For some spouses, I've, I've seen crisis phase last, last a week. I've seen crisis phase last six months. At some point, if the marriage is going to make it, it needs to move beyond crisis phase. Um, it, if, if it can, 
if it can. But the marriage cannot make it inside of a crisis. The difference between crisis phase, what happens, the shift from crisis phase to decision-making phase to rebuilding phase, what's happening is we're shifting responsibility for the marriage also. And here's what I mean by that. In the crisis phase, the responsibility for, for, the, for everything is in the hands of the unfaithful spouse. The, unfa- the responsibility for the marriage is 100% the responsibility of the unfaithful spouse. The hurt spouse carries 0% responsibility. The, unfaithful spouse, the hurt spouse is not capable of carrying any responsibility. Um, the, the, the unfaithful spouse really needs to be there 100%. He needs to listen. He needs to make room for what's happening. Whatever is happening in the marriage, he needs to be the one responsible. It's 100 to 0. When we move from crisis phase to the decision-making phase, the decision-making phase is really that phase where we want to try to discuss what happened, try to understand what happened. At that point, we're going to try to move responsibility for the marriage to a 70-30 ratio. Not, and I want to stress this, not responsibility for the infidelity, not for the, never for the affair. The, the responsibility for the affair, no matter what happened in the marriage, is 100% the unfaithful spouse's responsibility. But responsibility for the marriage. What, what, what is wrong with our marriage? Is there something wrong with our marriage? Is there something we can do to improve our marriage? When we get to the decision-making phase, to phase two, we want to shift it from 100 to 0 to 80-20, We want to create a little bit of a shift. Um, and then when we get to rebuilding phase, if we get that far, we want it to be 50-50, okay? or at least try to aim for a place where 50, there's a 50-50 responsibility for the marriage. Again, not, never for the affair, but for the marriage, of the understanding what's happening inside of our marriage. <clears throat> Some, something that's really, really important to think about carefully is the question of what to ask and what not to ask. Um, this is a tough question. What, what details does the hurt spouse want to know? Do I want to know the play-by-play? Do I want to know every single thing that happened? Is it important to me for me to know every single thing that happened? Yeah, usually the sort of details, the play-by-play is not necessary to be able to heal, but that really depends on you. It depends on the hurt spouse. Some people just have a need to know and they can't go further without knowing all the details. Everyone's different, but you really need to think. What, the thought process should be, you know, what purpose will it serve me to know this? Will knowing all the details cause me obsessive, obsessive pain, maybe make it impossible for me to be intimate afterwards? Is this information that I really, really want to know? It needs to be thought through carefully. Now, if you remember that asking these kinds of... When I, when I talk to the unfaithful spouse, what I'm going to tell the unfaithful spouse is you need to be totally, totally honest with your wife about what happened. You don't have to offer every detail. You don't have to say to her, Okay, let me tell you what happens, and then offer every single play-by-play detail. But if she asks you, you better be on. Any question that she asks, you better be 100% honest, because if you're not, you're setting yourself up for a crisis phase down the road and probably ending the marriage because you were lying. So, and, but then, so now, now that I've told the unfaithful spouse that he better be honest, I'm going to turn to the hurt spouse and say, if he's going to be really, really honest and share everything truthfully, now you need, to be, you need to be really, really careful what you ask. Um, what, what, what should I ask? What are, what are important questions to ask? What, what kind of questions are productive? Um, in phase two, it's probably a good idea to ask questions 
to really explore what caused you to want to behave this way. You want to know what was going on in the marriage, if anything, that caused the unfaithful spouse to want to behave this way. And I'm, I'm stressing the word want. You don't want to know what was going on in the marriage that caused the unfaithful spouse to behave this way because there was nothing going on in the marriage that caused the unfaithful spouse to behave this way. He behaved this way. That's his responsibility. But what caused them to want to? Is, was there some, is there something in the marriage that we can fix? Is there something you felt you were getting from an affair that maybe could happen in a marriage? Why did you need to do that? What was that need? Where was that need coming from? This is a really, really painful conversation. For the hurt spouse, this sounds impossible, and that's why you have to go through crisis phase first. When you're in crisis phase, this is an impossible conversation. You need to go through crisis phase to be able to have this kind of a conversation. Um, sometimes, sometimes the decision is going to be that the marriage needs to end for, for a lot of different reasons. Um, some of the reasons I outlined before, if there's no humility, if there's no taking responsibility, if the, if, the, if the unfaithful spouse doesn't want to end the affair or can't promise or is caught lying again, there, there may be many reasons why this has to end. Or maybe the, maybe the hurt spouse just can't get over it. It's, it's no, nobody can blame a hurt spouse for saying, I just can't get over this. I, I just can't. It's not possible. I can't. Sometimes the marriage needs to end. But what if this is something that might work? What if there's a feeling, you know what, maybe this could work? And sometimes that even comes up, even during the crisis phase. I've heard people say to me, I, I, you know, I, I want to kill him, but I, I think I do want it to work. Once there's, a, once there's a feeling that this marriage might work, it's really important to start focusing on the relationship and doing relationship things really as soon as possible, even in crisis phase. What I mean by doing relationship things I mean going out together, spending time together, being friendly, being warm to each other, if it's possible. Maybe even being intimate with each other if that's possible and both spouses want that. This could even happen in crisis phase. I've had, I've had couples ask me, you know, is, is it okay? You know, I just finished yelling at him and screaming at him that I want him to die and I never want to see him again in my life. Can, can we go out for dinner now? Can we go bowling? Or can we, can we be intimate after that? And the answer is, 100% yes. I would even encourage that. It, it, that flip back and forth between emotions is normal. It's okay. And it's really, really important. If, there's, if, if both spouses are okay with it, if the hurt spouse is okay with that, especially if the hurt spouse is okay with that, then yeah, go ahead and do that. Um, I want to touch very briefly on, on rebuilding phase. What, a, what does rebuilding phase look like? Um, there's, again, I'm going to say there's no, there's no smooth transition. You need a therapist and work closely with a therapist to figure out where you are. You might be in rebuilding phase. You might go back to decision-making phase. In this phase, in rebuilding phase, what you're trying to move into is the first two phases are all about the affair. When you move into the rebuilding phase, it's not so much about the affair, although the affair looms over the whole thing, but it's, it's, the, most of the emphasis is on the marriage, not the affair. And, and, and if you talk about the affair, it's more about what have we learned from the affair that we can use to reach, try to rebuild our marriage. What's important to understand about rebuilding phase is the, the trust is not there. It's, an, it's, it's fantasy to think that the trust is, is there before the rebuilding phase. The trust is shattered, and it's going to take a long, long time for that trust to be, to be rebuilt. And in order to move forward, there are, there are two things that are really going to be necessary, three things that are really going to be necessary. Number one, I said before, we're going to try to shift to a 50-50 mode if it's possible. 
But even in there, there has to be a willingness, even in the rebuilding phase, to go back to the crisis mode, to go back to the decision-making mode. If every time it goes back to crisis mode, the unfaithful spouse says, what's the matter? Why can't we just move on? It's, it's not going to work. There needs to be an understanding. The, the hurt spouse at this phase needs to try, needs to try to move beyond the crisis, needs to try to move into a rebuilding mode if that's what she wants, if that's what her values are telling her to do. But everybody needs to understand that it's going to fall back. It's, it's, not, gonna, it's, it's, it's not a smooth ride up. The second thing is because we're working without trust, we're really working without trust. We need to work with workable assumptions. And that's going to be a, a big factor in the rebuilding phase. We're working with workable assumptions. I don't know that I can trust you, but let, let's, see, let, let's, let's move forward as if we can trust each other and see where that goes. And because of that also, the third thing is focusing on values instead of feelings. There will be many times when the feelings are saying, let's not do this. I, I, want, I, want, I, want to, I want to run away from you. I want to throw you out of the head. I don't want to smile at you. And getting, getting in touch with what we value and sometimes trying to act from a place of value because this is what we're trying to do is necessary. But that doesn't mean you suppress the feelings. That doesn't mean you push down the feelings. The feelings need to be expressed. The feelings need to be, even in the building phase, all the, all the feelings need to be respected, even the crisis feelings. But the general sense is, can we try to shift it to a place of acting towards each other from a place of value? Um, before, before I close, I just want to I address one question that always comes up. And that question is, okay, so we're moving forward. This question comes up in crisis phase, in decision-making phase, in rebuilding phase. The question is, what do I do with the pain? I'm going to rebuild this marriage. I'm going to go ahead and live for another 40 years with somebody that caused me so much pain. Where's this pain going to go? Am I going to forgive and forget? Am I going to... And the answer is no. You're not... Forgiveness, maybe. At some time down the road, maybe. That's a different topic. But forget, never. I'm not even sure why they put the words forgive and forget together. You're not going to forget this. The pain will always be there. And, and what, what I tell couples, the metaphor that I use with couples in my office when, 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 when I'm addressing this question is the following metaphor. This is the muscle that I use. <clears throat> There's a couch in my office. Um, it's, it, for the size of my office, it's a pretty big couch. It takes up a lot of the floor space in my office, and it kind of you walk into my office, you can't miss the couch. It, it sort of defines my office. Now imagine, I take this same couch and I bring it to a wedding hall. I bring it to a huge ballroom with 500 guests, with tables and chairs and an orchestra, and I put the couch in the corner somewhere. The couch is there. The couch hasn't changed. It's the exact same couch as the couch that took up and defined my entire office. But now it doesn't define the ballroom. It doesn't define the wedding hall. It's in the corner somewhere. I'll still see it. Every once in a while, I'll pick up my eyes and I'll look over and I'll see the couch. Yep, it's there. Uh, every once in a while, when I, even when I don't want to pick up my eyes, I'll bump into the couch. It's there. But it doesn't define the ballroom. That's the muscle. The nimshal is, in the nimshal, the couch is my pain. And my office is, is my life. The couch, the pain defines my life. It's so huge that it defines my entire life. I walk into the office and all I see is the couch. I walk into my life and all I see is the pain. Going forward, the goal, the goal of, 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 of rebuilding phase, the goal of rebuilding a marriage after betrayal is not to make the pain less. I don't know that you can. But the goal is to rebuild the marriage or if it's not the marriage that's being rebuilt, to be, rebuild your life in a, in a way that now my life is not 
this small office, but my life is a ballroom. My life is a wedding hall. It's huge. I'm still going to see the pain. The pain hasn't changed. The couch is still there in the corner. But it's the context of the couch is different. My life is much bigger. The marriage is much bigger. That's the goal. And again, that's the goal whether, you're in the, whether you, the decision is to stay in the marriage, and that's also the goal if the decision is to leave the marriage. Can I make my life or my marriage big enough so that the pain is there, but it doesn't define it? Um, I'm going to stop here, not because, we're out of, not, not because there's not more to say, but because we're kind of out of time. And I, there's so much that's not covered, but my hope was that at least I was able to impart that there is a, there is a roadmap to this journey. It's not chaotic. There's a direction. Thank you very much. All right. So thank you very much. I think you covered a lot of the questions that came in, so we don't have to ask them. Um, and this is such an important topic. In very short, not to uh, act too hastily, I think, because so many people just act way too fast without thinking, like you said, crisis mode, and you have to go through the crisis. So really, thank you for outlining so much of what is possible. And uh, <coughs> Believe no one needs this information, but if there is help for people out there if you are in this kind of pain. So once again, thank you, Mr. Zev Lam, for joining us. Thanks for having me here. And it is available on our website, adayad.org, slash past-events. And thank you all, and good night.